Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now we're starting with one of our regulars today. She normally reviews and recommends books for us in Late Lunch Book Club. However, today, Margaret Madden has a story of her own to tell, and she's talking about her own experience in light of the Mother and Baby Home Report, which was published last week. Afternoon, Margaret. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. Great to talk to you on the show again today. Now, let's roll the clock back to the year 1989. You're sitting, you're leaving, Sarah. You're 16 going on 17. Can I ask you this? I was just thinking about our conversation a little while ago. You know, attitudes, late 80s, early 90s to sex and relationships and becoming pregnant. What was that attitude like in your world at that stage? I'm talking about at home, at school in general. You know, it, it, it hadn't moved on that much. It hadn't moved on as much as you would think um, for the year 1989. I mean, you're thinking about what was out at that stage, like Madonna and um, I made up my mind I'm keeping my baby, you know. Um, mm. No, it hadn't moved on as much as you would have thought. And uh, I learned that firsthand. <laughs> Were you, you know the way parents, I remember in my era, you'd get the warning, don't get us into any bother now with a girl or similarly, I'm sure girls were told about boys. Was that in your, an attitude in your home? It wasn't discussed, Jerry. You know, it just wasn't discussed. You, 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 you I don't know about in your household, but sex was not discussed. Um, mm. If anything came on the TV, it was turned over. Um, you had to get up out of your chair and turn it over though. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and there wasn't sex education per se in school at all. So yes. we were quite naive. We'd no internet. Um, yeah, the magazines, you'd have to go and buy, say, Cosmopolitan to find out anything like that. Yeah, so that's the way you picked it up from places like that and from chitter chatter with friends as well. Yeah, you, were in a rela- you were in a relationship with a- a- another lad that was at your school? Yeah. Yeah, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, we were in the same class in school and, uh, yeah, things took a very different turn. I had been doing so well in school all my life, really, really well. And it was always presumed that I would be the first person in my family and actually the larger uh, family to go to college. And uh, as I said, things took a bit of a turn. They did because you become pregnant in January 89, but you don't realise you're pregnant for a wee while. No, that's how naive I was. I was four months gone and I was really, really ill. As it turns out, I had a hyperemesis, which is just where you vomit non-stop. And it, it had got to this day. And I remember the doctor saying, and, and are you sexually active? And I was like, no, because my mum was in the room with me. <laughs> so I was going to say no anyway. And uh, so they, they were really, really worried. They, they were testing me for leukemia. Mm. You know, but 
it was another life that had started within your body. You were actually pregnant. Do you remember when that was confirmed? Who confirmed it for you? Was your mum there? She, my mum was in the in the doctor's surgery with me. Yeah, you know, girls didn't go to the doctor without their, their mother at that stage. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, it's all a bit of a blur, to be honest with you, but obviously I broke her heart, you know. Yeah. But she was very supportive. Oh God, absolutely. Absolutely. From the very first minute. I mean, she she roared crying and we stayed in the doctor's surgery, I think, for an hour chatting, um, trying to kind of get grips to it. And then we had the, the uh, we had to go home and tell my dad, you know, so it was a long evening. That was a different story because his attitude was different to your mother's. It was. He was devastated, like devastated. And um, things got very, very tense between us. And the agreement was that I could remain in the family home, but that I had to place um, the baby up for adoption. Um, Yeah, so it was very different. Um, But my parents were quite forward thinking in this in that they said that if I thought after six weeks that I wanted to keep the baby, that they would um, consider allowing me back or supporting me in what decision mm. I was going to do next. Yeah, yeah was, so the, what, there was leeway there. They were saying it wasn't a definite decision when the baby was born. What was the attitude in school, in the neighbourhood, people? Can you remember or is that a blur as well? Uh, it's a bit blurry, but I do remember that the principal kind of didn't want me there at all. So I was asked to stay at home, which I did for a while until my father just got really, really angry and brought me up and said he refused to do that. He wanted me to have an education and he fought and, he, you know, um, I went back. Now, it was quite difficult. Um, I was kind of made an example of um, and there were a few nasty things that happened, um, but... I was kind of the first one, so it was perfect for me to be used as an example, you know. Mm. And the boyfriend, he had no role at all in the pregnancy or the birth or beyond that? No. None at all. Okay. Now, the baby is due in September. You do, I know, in the interim, sit your leaving cert badly, as you said to me. It was a disaster for you. It was a disaster, yeah. I mean, I was heavily, heavily pregnant. I was an emotional wreck. I had no idea what I was going to do. I had just turned 17. Um, yeah, I sat the exams, but I walked out in the middle of the history one. I just couldn't. Uh, yeah, um, ironically, history was one of my favourite subjects. Uh, it, mm. was just, it was too difficult. I couldn't do it. Anyway, you head for the Rotunda. You're booked in there to have your baby late September. Um, what's that like for a 17-year-old going in to a, a renowned hospital like that? Were you welcomed with open arms? Absolutely not. God, no, far from it. I mean, the midwives and the nurses were lovely, but the doctors were not. Um, the doctor that... I, I actually went private. My and my mum <laughs> brought me to the doctor that had delivered me, and he was a devout Catholic. So, as you can imagine, this didn't go down too well. And he sent my mum home because it was a very, very long labour with some sleeping tablets and told her to go home and get a rest. And the minute she was gone, he just switched... Um, at one stage, even as I was kind of screaming with pain, leaning down and, and saying into my ear, not even in a whisper, um, it's your own feckin', well, he said it worse than that, <laughs> it's your own feckin' fault you got pregnant and you're in this state. My, oh my, and that was the man caring for you and bringing a baby into the world. Well, she arrived, Sarah, and she was a big baby. 
she was 10 four. she was massive and I'm only four for 11 so <laughs> <laughs> it was a big baby for sure yeah. but look there she is and she she's yours but you do know in the back of your mind that you're going to have to hand her over for a time anyway is that you know that to be in that mindset, thinking about that and in the throes of a delivery and you 17 years of age. Yeah, that was that was absolutely horrendous because they handed her to me um, after she'd been cleaned up and whatever and I got to hold her for a minute and my mum was there and then they took her off me and I didn't get to see her for three days and the only reason I got to see her at all was that I just had a complete meltdown and, and just insisted on seeing her. Every day I was like, where's my baby? Where's my baby? I want to see her. I want to see her. And they kept on saying she wasn't well. She was up in the NICU. Um, I knew that wasn't right. I knew that, that there was nothing wrong with her, that she was a big, healthy, bouncy baby, ready. To, she looked like she was ready to go to school. She was so big, you know. <laughs> um, and eventually they did bring me up, but told me I had to remain sitting in a wheelchair. I was to, I was only allowed to hold her with a nurse literally sitting right beside me. It was just very, very strange. Sorry, tell me about um, tell me about the uh, memory you have of the other young girl that was there. Yeah, um, although I was a private patient, I was put into a public ward. You know the way it goes with with maternity hospitals; you just never know on the day. Um, so there were uh, six other women in there with me um, and an empty bed. And in one of the beds, there was a girl even younger than me. She was fourteen, and she had just had a baby girl as well. Now, while she was allowed to have her baby beside her all along, she knew that this baby was going to be taken because she had actually been raped by a family member. And uh, they came in and, and the social worker came in on, on day four, I think it was, and took the baby. And I will never forget the screams that came out of that girl. She howled, absolutely howled. Like, it was just guttural the pain of it and I think eventually they had to sedate her because it all just stopped after a big swish of the curtain and lots of doctors and nurses going in you know that stays with you Margaret Sarah goes to Eglinton Road in the care of the nuns there and she's there for six weeks you go there every day yeah um I do I I I think it was presumed that I would drop her there and you know, kind of move on with my life, go back out with my friends and, and change my mind kind of thing. But I knew, I, I knew the minute she was born that I wasn't going to be separated from her and I was determined. Um, so I went over every day. I would get um, a bus from uh, where I lived, which was Malahide, and into the city centre. And then I would transfer from there um, on the second bus and go and see her every day. Yeah. So every day you're with her, you hold her, you change her, you feed her, but you have to leave her behind. You never had a doubt, even though you'd signed preliminary papers for her to go into their care. You you knew firmly in your mind and your mother was behind you. Your dad was still the issue about this whole thing, wasn't he? He was. And, and while he, he kind of can't really remember that much about this time either, I think a lot of it is, I think we both kind of blanked a lot of this out of our minds. Um I, I, I have to see it from a parent's point of view. He, he wanted me to have what he considered to be the best future and, and to get on with my life. And um, I think at the time, people believed that the only way you could do that was to give your child up for adoption, you know. 
And we are talking, folks, about 1990 here, 91 and those type of years. It's very recent memory, I have to say. You and I spoke about this at length yesterday. You mentioned the word damaged goods. Yeah, it was it was presumed that I was going there. It was kind of mentioned that I was damaged goods, like people, uh, my chances of meeting a partner uh, and, and them wanting to take me on um, were, were deteriorating the closer it got to the six weeks, you know, that kind of way. Um, yes. Some people were, were suggesting that I would never really find a husband, which is, you know, what people wanted for their daughters then, to find the perfect yeah. husband. Yes, or, you know, uh, if it was to be a husband or a career, whatever they wanted to do in life, they would see this as something that would be an impediment uh, to moving forward. Now, you did bring her home, which is the wonderful news. And tell us the moment you arrived home with your mum, of course, and Sarah and your dad, what you did with her. Yeah, you know, my dad hadn't really seen her. He'd only briefly seen her in the hospital. And um, I walked into the kitchen with her um, and immediately just cheekily just walked up and plonked this big, big baby into his arms and said, there you go. That's your first granddaughter, your first grandchild. And he just looked at her and said, Oh, she's a grand baba. She's a big boba. You know? <laughs> Lovely. Uh, and that was Lovely. it. Yeah, and that was that was the moment. That was the mending of ways, and you knew then, and he knew, and everybody knew. Full support behind you, mm. but it's fair to say that within the community, and uh, maybe a little further afield, it wasn't easy for you or your mum or the family with a baby arriving home to a single mum. No, no. Um, although my mum pushed the pram with her held her head held high, I didn't. Um, my head was kind of hung down. I was kind of I kind of felt like I was being stared at constantly and I was I was being stared at constantly and even going in to collect your unmarried mother's allowance which is what it was called then uh, which was pittance by the way if anybody thought that you were able to survive on that I don't know what they were thinking um, it, it was difficult you were treated differently at counter even in the post office you know it was it was mm. really difficult even though this was 1989 coming into 91 or into 90 yeah it was yeah, it was hard. It's, you know, when you talk about it in that context, well, anyway, you did meet a wonderful man. You went on to work in the bank and you met Declan mm -hmm. and you've had three children with Declan mm -hmm. and you fostered. I want to tell listeners, as again, remind them, you're a wonderful woman, a wonderful family. You fostered nine children as as well yourself. One other little thing, you, you didn't tell Declan's parents about Sarah for a while. <laughs> no, we kind of... We kind of kept that hidden for a while, but sure, you know, we didn't, first of all, know if we were going to be together for very long. And um, my fear was that Declan's family are, are very religious. And I thought if they heard this, they would kind of disown me or try and prevent him from seeing me. Now, incorrectly, very incorrectly, I have to add that. They're, they're great. Mm. Uh, but we didn't tell them for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but that's the way you felt. You had to hide everything. Mm. Yeah. Look, with this report issuing last week, obviously all this welled up within you and it sets you thinking again. Do you ever, you know, sit down and look at Sarah and think she might have been gone forever somewhere else and I might never know her? Absolutely. And the ironic thing is that she's just moved back in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you never get rid of them. <laughs> so there's five kids under my roof now and myself and Declan. And I do. We're all sitting around the kitchen table and I'm just going, we could be down one. You know, we could be mm. down a child here. Um, 
only that you, I was you, strong and, and yes, I had the support yes. of my parents. Very, very few girls at, in that era and obviously beforehand had the support of their parents. Mm. Um, and, and while and, I struggled with the support of, of one for a while, he eventually came around. And that is a moot point because I've been reading a lot of the report and commentary on it since it issued, I have to say. And yes, the church, yes, the state, uh, yes, the fathers. You know, you mentioned about that 14-year-old being raped and a lot of girls, you know, the the men never stood by them or were gone for good. But society, Margaret, families, your parents stood by it. They did. Um, And in reading all the reports as well, I I was kind of getting a little bit angry. I do think that society had a huge, a huge part to play in this, especially if there was no no land involved, as if we've all kind of realised there was inheritance things going on there as well. There, there's there's no reason why a lot of those girls ended up in those homes other than society. And, well, yes, the effect the church and yep. state had on, on that, but society played a huge part. And anybody who says it didn't is just lying to themselves. No, and that is pointed out uh, very strongly within the report as well. And there's no taking away from the other culpabilities. I'm saying that clearly now. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But there is an aspect of it that it is often perhaps slightly overlooked. Anyway, all's well that ends well. You went on and did your leaving, search, your degree, your master's. She's going to be a doctor, this woman, soon. <laughs> oh, my God almighty, isn't it just a great story? It really is. But look at... There is one thing uh, and one song, because I know you love your music, that's very special to you. Tell me why you love this song, because we're going to play it now in a moment. Um, Well, all the way over to see Sarah on those two buses, over and back, um, I had my Walkman, the original one with the earphones with the yellow spongy bits on it. And the tape that I listened to over and over again that kept me going was Christy Moore's The Voyage. Um, So there, yeah, every time I hear it even now, I get obsessed. um, But still... It all's well that ends well, as you said. You can shed your tears in private now as we say goodbye. We'll see you next week for the books. God bless you. Bye, hon. Thank you, Margaret. Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.